It's the 19th of September, 2015, and this is episode 248. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Eli Dorado, a research fellow at the Mercatus Institute and director of their technology policy program. Eli, thanks for joining us today. Uh, My pleasure. Glad to be here. So let's talk about Bitcoin governance as it is right now, just as kind of a starting point for this uh, conversation. Uh, What is Bitcoin governance? How does it work currently and why does it matter? I think the starting point on this is that Bitcoin is an open network, right? And so, so that produces all of the benefits that we love about Bitcoin. It makes uh, permissionless innovation possible. Nobody needs to ask for permission in order to innovate on the Bitcoin platform. And it also provides resistance to capture and censorship. All the stuff we love about Bitcoin is due to the fact that it's a completely open network. But that also means that it doesn't work to govern Bitcoin from the top down. You can't explicitly ban contentious forks, for instance. And so that means that Bitcoin is actually governed in a more bottom-up process. Uh, you know, there are developers who correspond with each other on on the Bitcoin developers mailing list, and they they form part of you know what governs the direction of Bitcoin the network. But miners also have a role. Exchanges have a role. Users have a role. Everybody's because Nakamoto consensus, right, and the, and, the, and market adoption of Bitcoin is what ultimately drives the success of the network. All of these players who have any sort of uh, role in that are going to have some say in how the network is governed. But in practice, this is something that really has been the domain primarily of the developers. That's right. We've seen the community speak out about things. We've seen lots of different perspectives, but to a large degree, that comes off as non-productive to me under most circumstances because a lot of times the things that we're arguing about as a community aren't one where there is a definitive right answer or a wrong answer. It sort of depends on what you're looking to get out of the question. So I totally agree that a lot of what has been going on is non-productive. And it's true that the developers govern the direction at least of the reference client. But again, because it's an open network, that enables the possibility of something like XT to come along and uh, create create a contentious fork or threaten to create a contentious fork doesn't look like it's going to happen now and so i still think that it's important to keep in in the background the the possibility that adoption that markets are, are playing a role here as well some have described the xt fork as a coup and i want to get your thoughts on that both from the perspective of is that an accurate description of what's happening and also just generally, how would you define what is happening with XT? Assume for a second that it happens. Assume for a second that, you know, uh, uh, there's no question about that. It, you know, we're a year down the road. It's happened. What does that mean? I don't think that the language of a coup is very helpful. I well, think it's, it's polemic, right? It's, uh, it's, yes. it's divisive language, but it, there's a specific meaning to it. It means that there's a process and this is a subversion of that process through illegitimate means is how I would kind of define it. So what made the existing process legitimate, right? Like, like there is, like, there's no uh, constitutional moment where we all decided, uh, okay, here's the, here's the process by which we make the Bitcoin 
network, right? The Bitcoin network is sort of an emergent thing. So I would say call the Bitcoin XT attempt illegitimate by any means. I would say instead, perhaps it was ill-advised or perhaps, you know, it's a little rash or perhaps it doesn't make the best trade-offs or, you know, but I think there are ways to sort of be negative about it without, without being so inflammatory. Uh, and I think that would be, you know, more helpful for the, the community to start expressing, you know, their disapproval in those terms. So, I, you know, I think if, if the XT fork happens, I mean, it's only going to happen if 75% of miners switch to, to an XT compatible client. Uh, and along with that, it's going to require the vast majority of exchanges and merchants to accept XT coins once once that happens. And so I think that that would be, if it succeeded, which which I do somewhat doubt at this point, that would just be the majority going in the direction that 25% or less of the community doesn't want to go in. Is it desirable that there's that contention? You know, no. But I don't, I think that, you know, words like legitimate or illegitimate aren't very helpful at this point. So less of a coup, more of a popular revolution or nothing. Like there's kind of not a middle ground there. If it, you know, if they are 75% support for it, then it's going to happen. And it's not a coup because, well, it's a popular revolution. There's enough support behind it that it's not this small group of people acting in the shadows. It's this, you know, group of people that became large because their ideas were the ones that won. Right. It can't be a small group of people that takes over, right? That's, I mean, that's the whole point uh, of Bitcoin, right? You, you, you have to have the majority of the network. These are hard things to talk about. And even when there is a right answer, like assuming that we have an issue where there's a totally right answer, but it's just technically complicated, the vast majority of the people who are supposed to have their opinions matter in this case aren't really educated enough to do it. And so a lot of this stuff just kind of gets handed off to different, um, I wouldn't call them personalities, but different archetypes that are able to articulate and seem to represent one position. And then it stops being about what the particular issue is because nobody understands that anyways. And it starts being about what do you think of that Yeah, I think, I think that's totally right. Because you can't govern Bitcoin the way you can govern a fiat currency, right? There's, there aren't people who can exert command and control sort of over it. That means that I think that the, the community is resorting to norms to uh, discourage the sorts of contentious forks and other behaviors that they want to discourage. And that, you know, norms sometimes means name calling, it means uh, inflammatory language, it means having a side in, in the battle and, and sort of narrating to oneself the, the story of Bitcoin as, you know, this is us versus them, or, or you know, this is good versus evil. For better or worse, we're wired by evolution to enjoy us versus them stories, right? Good versus evil stories. It's like a kind of candy for your brain. You know, usually these stories, unfortunately, leave a lot of information out. Like maybe it's maybe it's more complicated. My colleague Tyler Cowan says that every time you tell yourself a good versus evil story, you should imagine that you were pressing a button temporarily lowering your IQ by 10 points or more. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is the kind of thing that hampers our ability to think rationally about important decisions. So given all of these things as just kind of realities of the situation that we find ourselves in, you know, what is, I mean, are, are there any examples out there of, of good governance situations in this type of an environment where you have this, you know, incredibly broad and diverse group of people who all have needs from the system? 
uh, many of whom are, are quite conservative. I mean, like, it seems like you almost want a type of constitution that can be an enabling doctrine, right? That says these are the things that, that are powers that can be given to these certain, you know, entrusted bodies, but then everything else is not included in that. All of that stuff is, is off limits to this, you know, super powerful entity because otherwise it can do all kinds of things that are bad. And I mean, in practice, we've seen that uh, maybe constitutions don't always work quite as well as we'd like them to. But with something like Bitcoin, again, you have the ability to do it like they've done mining, where it's not about people choosing to follow the rules. It's about you follow the rules or you don't participate in the system. It's kind of binary. So I, I think certainly embedding rules in the network, as long as everybody wants to go along with it, is, is great and that'll work. What if they don't want to go along with it? And then you just fork the network again. So I don't think that there is any sort of constitutional system that will work in a completely open network. Certainly not any constitutional mechanism that's you know, not in code. If it's not in code, it certainly won't work. I think that actually a good model for, for thinking about how to conduct Bitcoin policy, which is actually what a lot of these developers are doing, is the model of international diplomacy. In addition to working on Bitcoin, one of the other things I work on is internet governance. And in that role, I have worked on a couple of international telecom treaties at the UN, you know, as an advisor to the US government. It's interesting when you're at one of these meetings, everyone is very, very polite. Uh, <laughs> everyone is uh, very careful to make sure that at every point you're staying focused on the issues, you're not bringing personalities into it. Part of this is because you're dealing with multiple cultures. You want to ensure that there are no cultural misunderstandings. But uh, part of it also is that you want to stay focused, as focused as possible on the substantive issue. I think a good model is just is that sort of, you know, think of yourself as a diplomat when you're arguing about these issues. You know, maybe there are some issues where it's, it is purely technical and, and not ideological or not policy related exactly. And then maybe we can still just have the very efficient, just purely technical conversation. But as soon as an issue starts getting contentious, maybe we should think about, let's elevate this, let's, you know, be scrupulously polite and you know, keep things focused on, on just the ideas. So there's a lot of noise in the current debate because anybody can say anything, you know, at, at one of these conferences you're talking about or at one of, you know, these efforts, you have a defined group of people who are all stakeholders and all appreciate the sensitivity of the matter. Whereas in the situation we're talking about, where you know you're talking about Reddit, you're talking about all kinds of forums all over the internet, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not really the case. People pick sides and then they want what they want. It's not about the compromise. Is that better or is that worse? I mean, like in some of those circumstances, right? Like uh, treaties can have compromises in them that don't benefit everybody, right? That you give something in exchange for getting something back. So you don't really have that sort of trade-off in this type of an environment because the people who are making the decisions aren't necessarily representing the people who are going to be affected by the decisions. I think a compromise is possible. You know, there, there are people, I'm sure, they think we must have eight megabyte blocks, you know, tomorrow or else the world will fall apart. And there are other people who think if we raise it by even one kilobyte, you know, like Bitcoin's going to have new attacks possible. Is it really true that we can't, like, find the middle ground. I'm skeptical that it's really going to be that impossible to find some cautious middle ground that satisfies both sides. I think part of what inhibits getting to compromise is that 
human psychology. We, we, we have lots of people in the community who are very excited about Bitcoin, which is great. They have understandably perhaps wrapped up part of their like identities in, in Bitcoin. Like they are like Bitcoin is like a part of them and they have, you know, a particular conception of what the future of Bitcoin looks like. And when that conception gets threatened, you know, their brains interpret that as a personal attack and the result is a lot of emotion. So just taking a deep breath and taking a step back from that and working towards a compromise, I think is a good idea. So one of the nightmare scenarios that gets talked about is that uh, XT gets 75% support that it requires in order for the fork to happen and the fork happens. But then 25%, uh, instead of switching over to the new fork and Bitcoin then realigning as the one true Bitcoin as this new Bitcoin that has you know XT in it or whatever, that 25% is like, no, screw you guys. We're going to just stay over here and use our Bitcoin and you're going to use your Bitcoin over there. Um, I want to hand wave aside the, you know, the kind of technical hurdles that come if this was to happen, because there are some meaningful technical hurdles. Um, and just kind of talk about the the incentives and you know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Because the thing that that has been particularly interesting to me about there there's an extreme position. And I don't mean in that, that it's a wrong position. I just mean that it's kind of at one extreme of the spectrum that says that Bitcoin both should not have larger blocks and it should not have uh, you know trusted third party layers. It should just basically stay just Bitcoin, right? Just pure, true Bitcoin. You're only using normal transactions on it, not even metadata, anything like that. The thing that emerges from that perspective, from what I can tell, is that you wind up with, instead of there being, you know, one Bitcoin, you wind up with like a hundred Bitcoins. And a Bitcoin, you know, one of these specific Bitcoins grows, you know, Bitcoin music, whatever. It grows until it reaches the capacity of its blockchain. So, you know, maybe a hundred thousand users per blockchain, something like that. And then it splits again. And now you've got, uh, you know, Bitcoin wrap and Bitcoin country and, you know, all of these other kind of niche blockchains. And, and you get this kind of turtles all the way down effect. Do you see where I'm going with this? Just aside from the, uh, the technical issues, I, I think that this is unlikely in, just in terms of the economics and the game theory. I think there are very, very strong network effects for cryptocurrencies that are similar to each other, right? So I think you can have altcoins that have different characteristics but i think if, if you're talking about something where it's literally the only difference is block size perhaps i think it's something like a winner-take-all market you can have maybe a few people keep alive the the old chain as like a labor of love or something i don't see it very likely and we've, we've seen this from the from the altcoin market unless you have a coin that that has some new functionality it's bringing along some new functionality like Ethereum or something. There's not a big market for a Bitcoin clone right now. So I think it's pretty unlikely. My training is as an economist and, and just looking at the, the economics literature on currency competition. Some economists say it's kind of a puzzle about why even we have infinite number of equilibria in terms of fiat currencies, because fiat currencies are all very similar to each other. They're just pieces of paper. So why does it matter which, which kind of piece of paper you use? And some economists have been able to work this up into something that they think of as a puzzle. Without getting too far into that, with cryptocurrency, it's even more extreme. If it, you literally you know, have two chains and they do the same thing, one of them's going to win, I think, in the end. Why would you use the one that is less secure or that has you know, worse governance or fewer eyeballs? 
Well, I think that because those are, except for the eyeballs part, those are kind of relative metrics, right? If let's just take the block size example as a simple one. If you're somebody who is building a business that fundamentally relies on 20 megabyte blocks being something that you know you're going to have in you know two years from now, then you have a lot of incentive to keep using that blockchain and to push that blockchain and to and again like cryptocurrencies. One of the things that's different about them from fiat currencies is that they can be incredibly intercompatible with each other, especially when they're very very uh, similar to each other and when you have enabling layers like exchanges and things like that. And in the future, it's kind of been my contention that we're going to see what I call automatic interchange wallets, where you can send an invoice to somebody and they can pay you in whatever type of value they want to pay you in, and it converts to whatever type of value you wanted to be paying because there's no reason why that can't be automated. So when you have that type of like the, that lack of friction, the reasons not to do it, the, the economic incentives, I totally agree with you. Winner takes all, huge in currency, but to a large degree, we're going beyond currency when we talk about things that want some of these more advanced uses of blockchains. That's where I come back to, and I am going to throw this back at you again a little bit. In that situation where there's a good reason for both sides, right? The people who want the one megabyte blocks, they want to do settlement on the blockchain. And so they want a settlement blockchain that's as decentralized as far as nodes are concerned as possible. And you've got this other side over here, and they're both fundamentally Bitcoin, right? They both are fundamentally Bitcoin, not like an altcoin. And one of the relevant parts about that is that altcoins don't replicate holdings. Mm, that's true. So when you buy an when you create an altcoin, you know, like there's nobody vested in, but when you would fork a Bitcoin, everybody who ha would now have their balance on both sides. I think that's one of the most fascinating things about chain forks, right? Is that, as you say, it's not like a territory seceding, right? It would be like a territory seceding and everybody gets citizenship in both governments. Exactly. And then from there on out, you get to pick which one you prefer, or you can continue to work with both, but that might be onerous. And again, like it gets easier if your wallet supports it. If they both have value, you're going to want to keep both or exchange out of one and into the other entirely. I think it's theoretically possible that you know they could coexist and trade at different prices relative to each other, right? So I think that you wouldn't be able to have a system where they both trade at exactly the same price in terms of you know dollars or one-to-one -one or anything like that. Probably whichever one like got stronger would appreciate and the one that got weaker would depreciate. But you know, given the ability to depreciate, maybe there is some way that, that, that the weaker one could, could stick around. Presuming that there is a technical use case for it, I think. Maybe it is true that there's, there's a, a, a massive, massive difference between one megabyte blocks and, and 20 megabyte blocks in terms of sort of what the network is able to support in terms of kinds of use. And if that's the case, and both kinds of use have value and they're, they're incompatible with each other, maybe that would work. I'm still skeptical, but I think it's possible. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by Tokenly. Limitless tokens for a tokenless world. Recently, I've been enjoying these dedicated musical breaks, so today we're trying something a little bit new. This song is called Rainstorm by the Free Descendants of Man. I'll be back in a little less than three minutes with today's magic word. Enjoy! Once again. <laughs> 
in a rainstorm I aim for the same port That would change course and bring forth the rain more What's the name for universal unification nation status? It's raining out the palms at the gas stations It's enough to talk you in to sleep but it never wake you up Here's a pillow in a newspaper but I give you all my love If I could I would have carried you until the end of time And when they buried me I'll terribly tell you you never die I'm an island in no man's land where no man has ever noticed That no matter where your home is, you're never really homeless All my clothes on my back with a rucksack with a buff back to be the one that torches so said someone once said I am undead I'm nothing without my breath I'm streaming in the oxygen and sifting siphon Swimming down to the bottom of the ocean Lifting up the sunken titans And a man, the anaconda Doctors know the antidote is do not panic Random mammoth, this is how it goes You're not alone and I don't know why You would want to live forever if you're already alive Oxygen and sifting siphon, swimming down to the bottom of the ocean, lifting up the sunken titans. And a mana and a corner, doctors don't say antidote. It's do not panic, random mammoth, this is how it goes. You're not alone, and I don't know why you would want to live forever if you're already alive right now. You're not alone, and I don't know why you would want to live forever if you're already alive right now. Gonna end this song, it goes on And then it goes like this again I wish it did, this is how I'd like to live In a child so alive And I'm just a kid, yeah. Lifting up the rickshaw, stripped up the wristwatch It's not the time, just wanna make it last And it seems like never gonna have another chance And that's that, so this is all that I brought Into the rainstorm, wait for it It's just a thought you can find a link to the Free Descendants of Man in the show notes for this episode, 248, or by visiting thefreedescendantsofman.com. Today's magic word is why. That's W-H-Y. Why? You've got until the 26th of September to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Let's rejoin Eli now. So the Bitcoin project has changed a lot in terms of the people who are developing it over the last, you know, five or six years. And if you look at the history of the what I would call the governance model in terms of who is deciding what actually makes it into the official code base, for the first period of time it was Satoshi, and he was effectively a benevolent dictator. Um, he, you know, had sole uh, sole authority to do that. And when he left, he gave it to Gavin. And then Gavin went through a liberalization process where he brought in more people who could effectively all fill that role of benevolent dictator because any one of them could add something and any one of them could also remove something. And so you'd have the ability now for the first time for there to be these kind of stalemate situations where the people who have the authority to do it can disagree and thus nothing can happen. And so it's been interesting to watch this conversation because one of the arguments that's being leveled against this attempt at a fork, just to be clear, I'm not in favor of either fork, but I think that it's an important ability for the system to have because it means that any governance model doesn't have a monopoly on the ability to govern and that anybody who does, you know, this situation is an attempt to change the governance model effectively 
And if that's something that should happen, then it's something that certainly should be able to happen. So I like that about it. But, you know, it's not like XT is specifically something that we're supporting in Let's Talk Bitcoin or anything like that. So uh, one of the things that's been leveled against this attempt at a fork is that it is attempting innovation in the governance model and innovation in a negative capacity, right? It's changing the long established way things are. And if you just look back not that far, it seems like that actually the model we have now where you have multiple benevolent dictators uh, instead of just the one, that's the innovation. I think that's fair. I agree with you that I don't, I don't support or not support XT. I think the, the ability to fork the network is important as well. So yeah, I would say that the actual decision-making about the, the reference client has, has indeed changed. And I think now it's even more consensus-based than it was when Gavin was in charge, from what I understand. The complaint that it's, it's too much trying to change the governance model of, of, the, of the reference client, I don't put too much stock in that. I think it's perfectly fair to try to you know, make Bitcoin work the way you want it to work, including by putting out your own code. This isn't a violent revolution. This is just a couple guys, Mike Hearn and, and Gavin and Drissen, putting out what they think Bitcoin should be like and people can adopt it or not. I think it's pretty peaceful by coup or revolution standards. There are a number of things about the Bitcoin protocol that are kind of ongoing problems that people have attempted to solve in various ways. And I kind of just want to hit you with a couple of these questions. So the Bitcoin Foundation was originally uh, created to act as an advocacy group for a bunch of different companies and uh, also to channel their resources into the continued development of the protocol. And so for the first couple of years, I guess year and a half um, of the Bitcoin Foundation's existence, they uh, funded development in the form of funding Gavin. And I think they had some bounties and there might have been some other, I think there were, there were some contests and things like that, but not too much. We've more recently seen private companies like BitPay and uh, Coinbase hiring people who are doing core development work on the protocol. And it seems like that's kind of the way that these things are developing, that individual participants within the ecosystem are hiring uh, you know, talent who then contribute, but those that talent is then not only beholden to what they think is right for the project, but also potentially beholden to what is best for the company because they're employed by the company. The company is paying for their time on the protocol. And so it seems like there is some sort of implied responsibility to it. What do you think about the way that we're doing things as a way to create this decentralized, very neutral, very powerful platform? What do you think of it? And do you have any suggestions for how we can improve it? Or, or is there a way that you think it should be done differently? I still think of us as being in the very, very, very early stages of Bitcoin. And I think right now, the industry that, you know, the nascent industry that is developing around Bitcoin, the interest of the industry is probably like 90 something percent in line with, you know, other, uh, everybody else in the community. So I think at least for now, there is a strong interest in just doing whatever it takes to make Bitcoin succeed, which is, you know, not a sure thing. I'm a, you know, big Bitcoin fan, but I'm not a, like a believer in that, you know, this is definitely, the party is definitely going to keep going. It's still an open question. In that sense, the industry is probably very aligned still. I guess I don't worry about it, but what I think could happen is down the road, let's say that this gets to be very, very mature. Let's say Bitcoin becomes worth trillions of dollars instead of billions. You could see something like the corporations that are, are forming now could be, you know, as gigantic and dinosaur-like as, you know, Goldman Sachs is today. So 
once that gets to be the case, I, I would worry a lot more about how Bitcoin development is funded. For now, I kind of think it's great that, that we see so many companies stepping up to, to fund developers. I think it's in their interest to fund the development, make sure that in particular, the parts of the network that they need to use are, are you know, well maintained and paid attention to. I think that's for now, it's, it's pretty much in everybody's interest for that to continue. Would it be better if there were more people contributing to the Bitcoin project at, at this point, or would it just create a bigger consensus problem? You know, I think that that's a, a question that's probably for the engineers. I think the actual the developers would probably have a better sense of that than I would. I think, you know, it might be useful to have more people contributing to alternative implementations, right? So we have and the way, for better or worse, that, that Bitcoin has operated so far is that there's just been one reference client that sort of defines what Bitcoin is. And there are some alternative clients in other programming languages and, and you know, layers built on top of, of them and so on. That, so all follow the reference client's lead. As Bitcoin grows up, I think it will be more useful to instead define a, a specification for how the network behaves and then allow sort of on a more equal footing different implementations to compete with each other or, or to coexist. It would be great if we had more engineers joining in the effort to build implementations in other languages and, and so on. The interesting part to me about the uh, reference implementation question, and one of the things that I hadn't actually realized until it was explained to me by uh, Nick Rathman, even in the event that you have this XT fork scenario, the only reason why the, the, the networks would be incompatible with each other is because the block size would be inconsistent and you would have different blocks being found because it would be impossible to find a block larger than one megabyte on right. the one blockchain. But that's the only reason. So Right. Again, so everything else that's different about XT is fine in terms of the, the network existing as one network. Right, exactly. So, so yeah, so it seems like there is already the potential to have just a ton of variety in there, so long as you don't change those core and fundamental rules. And in practice, that's what we've seen, is that the different types of wallets that are out there are in large part built in many cases from scratch, using kind of that reference implementation to know the things that they should avoid doing to break things, but then everything else they completely reinvent. So there already is a lot of diversity. It's just that they're not reference clients and so because of that, there's a perception that there is a right way, which is the reference way. And uh, you could try this way, but that's not the reference way. Right. So is it beneficial to have a reference client at all? Again, this is like an early Bitcoin versus maturing Bitcoin thing. Certainly, it wouldn't have been... I, I'm grateful that Satoshi Nakamoto, you know, in addition to publishing the paper about how this would work, wrote a client that, you know was usable, right? You could you could you could run it and and try it out and and really jump started the project. And it could be that in the early days, which we're still in, maybe it's still beneficial to have a reference client that we just we just make changes to, you know, relatively quickly. The idea of using instead of a reference client would be, you know, use uh, specifications and because documentation tends to lag code, we can move more quickly when we have a reference client that you know everybody agrees is sort of the reference client than if we had started from a specification and then had to implement that uh in a in a dozen different ways so i think in terms of like fast iteration it's it's better in the long run i think it would be better to have a multiplicity of of clients all on an equal footing 
that would just be a sign that Bitcoin has matured, that the protocol is stable, that you know the, the chain is stable. So I think that that would be a good thing. So just to clarify, a reference client differs from a specification in that a reference client is an open source piece of software that is actually a running piece of software where if you want to download that, you can actually run it, see how it works, see how everything connects you know, in the user interface, and then also look at the code so you can see how it was done. And that differs from a specification because the specification doesn't actually have the working piece of code, but it's more of like a map of here's why you would want to do these things, here's how these things are done, and then how it, you implement it won't be so derivative of the reference client because that's an actual working example as opposed to this, which is a more abstract but explanatory document. Right. I think of this in terms of uh, you know the early days of the internet, right? We have now specifications for you know what TCP IP is. There's no reference client for TCP IP. There's just a IETF document called an RFC that defines how TCP IP works. And anybody can try to implement it on their platform and be totally interoperable. I think that in the long run, we'll probably move towards that kind of model for how the network's going to work. So another part of the network is mining. And uh, mining is one of these things. I remember the first year we were doing Let's Talk Bitcoin, I guess the first six months we were doing Let's Talk Bitcoin, the first thing that I was like, this is a problem, we have to talk about this extensively and deal with it, was mining centralization. And the problem that I saw and I think still remains the problem, is that the block reward, when every 10 minutes uh, you know, a block is found, that block reward, whatever it is, can only go to one address. And because it can only go to one address, it means that you have this situation where only one person can win and everybody else who is trying at that point loses, which then makes it so that if you aren't likely to win by operating you know, your own uh, miner, your incentive is just like with a lottery to join a lottery pool where you might win less, you'll, you'll win less quantitatively but you'll win way more often because you're pooling your odds with everybody else and making one more powerful thing. So this is something that I don't see a way out of. It seems like this is always going to get to be a worse and worse problem because the mining power is continuing to go up over time. It's not you know, quite as uh, consistent as it was before, but we've reached a point where, you know, again, there are always pools that if you took two of them and stuck them together, you'd have more than 50% of the power. Doesn't seem like a good situation, but I can't really think of a way out of it while we still have that fundamental constraint of only being able to pay one person, as opposed to what it seems like the ideal solution would be, which is that the reward is split up proportionally based on contribution as opposed to based on actual results, because then I have an incentive as an individual to run my computer, because even though I'm only making you know a half of a penny worth of Bitcoin every time a block is found, well, I'm making a half a penny worth of Bitcoin every time a block is found, as opposed to what we have now, where maybe I make five dollars every time you know I participate in a pool, and the pool you know wins one out of every ten, something like that. I've been trying to figure out these incentives, and you're an economist, so I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm totally putting you on the spot here. This is not a prepared question. I'm curious if you see any efficiencies that could be gained here, or other ways that we could do this that would align things a little better towards more decentralized, uh, you know, solutions. Well, that's a great question. Probably not a popular answer, but I think the level of centralization we should focus instead of just percentage of the of the total hashing power you have. It's like I would think more in terms about equality of the division of the hash pool. So if you have, you know, let's say, five truly independent pools that all have twenty percent, 
that's more decentralized than two pools that have 50% combined and then everybody else is, is a solo miner in the sense that you need, uh, you need to convince fewer people. That's a really hard question. I, I wonder if in the long run we're going to see financial institutions who adopt Bitcoin as a settlement mechanism wanting to run their own nodes. And while they're running their own nodes, might as well run their own mining operation. Eli, thank you very much for your time. If uh, people want to find more of your perspective on the internet, where should they go? They should follow me on Twitter, probably. It's Eli Dorado on Twitter. E-L-I-D-O-U-R-A-D-O. Eli, before we turn on the recorder, you were telling me about one of your side projects where you've been tracking Bitcoin price volatility for some time now. What's that about? So uh, a, w a while back, there were a lot of discussions about Bitcoin volatility. I guess it must be over a year ago now. Uh, I made a website called the Bitcoin Volatility Index. It's at btcvol.info. And basically, this is just a site that I use to track how much, you know, how volatile the price of Bitcoin is in terms of US dollars. Recently, I added comparisons to other currencies, you know, so how much does the euro vary against the dollar and how much does gold and how much does the Brazilian real and, and the Thai bot, etc. vary against the US dollar so that we can sort of get a metric of how quickly or how slowly perhaps Bitcoin is succeeding. I think uh, as a long run trend, it's pretty clear that Bitcoin volatility is falling, which is, you know, good news. That's what we want to see. Once we see like robust options markets, futures markets, etc., that that will even take some of the volatility out of it even further. That's the metric that I use to think about the maturity of Bitcoin as a currency. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Eli and Adam. Music for this episode comes to us via Jared Rubens and the Free Descendants of Man. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.